You're listening to Faith and Reason 360. I'm Deborah Dykes. And I'm David Dykes. And for many Christians who observe the liturgical or church calendar, we have begun the season of Advent. Now, this is the period of four Sundays and weeks before Christmas. Advent means coming in Latin. And this is the coming of Jesus into the world. Many Christians use the four weeks of Advent to prepare and remember the real meaning of Christmas. Faith and Reason is bringing to you a four-part Advent podcast series with special guest John Dominic Crossan. So once a week for the next four weeks, we will interview Dr. Crossan, who will talk to us about his and the late Marcus Borg's book, The First Christmas. So thank you, Dr. Crossan, for being with us. May I call you Dom? Yes, certainly, Devil. Okay. Um, now let me uh, give a little background of information very briefly, and then, Dom, I, you just take it over. Um, All right. When, when um, you read the Christmas stories in Matthew and Luke, you immediately see how different the two narratives are. They're both about the story of the birth of Jesus, but they are very different in the way they tell the story. All right, and let me say one thing to slightly de-romanticize and de-sentimentalize Christmas. It is, of course, about the birth of a child, and that is always something marvelous, something to celebrate. But it's also, if I may use a word that is appropriate at the moment, about a transition from the old to the new. (laughs) And unfortunately, as we'll find out, in a transition from the old to the new, the old very often refuses to go quietly into the night. (laughs) The old very often fights hard to retain itself. So I don't want to think of Christmas just as a very sentimental, lovely birth of a child, which of course it is. But this child represents a new and something of a threat to the old. So let's keep that in the background. Then we have... Matthew and Luke. Of the four Gospels, only Matthew and Luke have what we might call an infancy or a narrativity or a nativity story. Mark doesn't have it. John doesn't have it. But all of them have what I'm going to call an overture. And that's a crucial word to understand. Let me explain what I mean by an overture. It's not just the first chapter. It's not just the beginning. It's a start that gives you a sort of a thematic medley. Let me give you an example. When I was at boarding school in Donegal, way back in the late 40s, every year we did a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta. It was put on. They never invited me to sing, by the way. It was never (laughs) part of it. I almost saw it. But anyway, when we did the Pirates of Penzance, for example, one year, you would recognize in the beginning the uh, orchestra came on and there was nobody on stage. And all the themes that you would later recognize in the actual operetta were given as a medley. You mightn't recognize them in the beginning, but eventually you say, oh, that's the theme of uh, I am the very model of a modern major general, or that's the theme for a quince when constabulary duty is to be done, to be done. So an overture is a thematic medley 
that warns you, prepares you, gives you in advance all that is to come. Okay, that's clear from musical medley. Let me give you another example now, moving closer to Mark, uh, to Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, because I'm going to be arguing that they're overtures. Mm-hmm. In that magnificent book by Barbara Tuckman, The Guns of August, about the opening months of the First World War, it came out in 1962, won the Pulitzer Prize, quite all, quite rightly. She has three main chapters, not chapters, sections, let's say. The plans, the outbreak, and the battle. But she begins with what I would call not the first chapter, but an overture. She tells about the funeral of Edward VII on May the 20th in 1910. You say, wait a minute, this is supposed to be about 1914. Why are we, why are we beginning in 1910 about a funeral that has nothing to do with anything? Because this is a funeral attended by all the crowned heads, at least nine kings, I remember, from Europe. It's their funeral. This is an overture. As you read this story, you read, you're reading a funeral for the royalties and dynasties and empires of Europe, the Hohenzollerns, the, the Habsburgs, the, the Romanovs, the, the Ottomans, too. So that's an overture. It's like a clue to everything that's coming. Let me move now into Matthew and Luke. Everyone knows who's read them, and sometimes people actually do read them, that in the crib you've a happy combination of the shepherds and the magi. The shepherds come from Luke, the magi come from Matthew. So if you're really thinking, and that's always a danger when you read the New Testament, that you might actually read carefully and think, deeply, why are they so different? If we're reading the nativity of the same child, shouldn't they be more or less the same? Okay, we'll allow a certain variation, but when we read, for example, the crucifixion in Matthew and Luke, one doesn't say he was crucified in Jerusalem and the other say he was lynched in Galilee. (laughs) They're basically the same story. Yet, when you read Matthew 1 and 2, and Luke 1 and 2, you don't seem to be reading about the same child. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can shoehorn, excuse the expression, shoehorn the Magi into the crib, but it's pretty difficult to get those two stories together. So my, my suggestion, my proposal, I think the fact actually, is that each of these twin chapters are not first chapters of the story, and hence there's a great missing years, as we call it. There are no missing years, because the infancy stories are, very careful language now, not historical prologues, historical overtures, but parabolic overtures. If I put it negatively, but I don't want to put it negatively, they never happened. They were written by Luke in preparation for, in thematic summary of the gospel that's going to follow in Luke 3 to 24. And Matthew does exactly the same thing for his gospel following in Matthew 3 to 28. He's going to write an overture. It's as if both of them have finished their gospels. And each of them says, now, I gotta help my readers. I'm going to present them with this on a 
wall-to-wall manuscript with no breaks, no verses, no chapters. It's going to be all capital letters, one right after another. I'm going to give them a sort of an overture up front so they have some idea what's going on. So the proposal I'm making to you is that the difference between them is perfectly logical because, of course, they're basically different Gospels, different visions of the meaning of Jesus. Perfectly valid, by the way, different meanings and interpretations of the same facts. But each of them has a parabolic overture. Now, let me pick up that word parable a bit. Yeah, that's, that's a little bit challenging. Yeah. For example, supposing you were in the audience and Jesus has just told you the parable. Well, let me not say parable. The story of the Good Samaritan. Okay, you've just heard it for the first time among a Jewish audience. And let's say some person in the audience sticks up their hand immediately and says, Jesus, Jesus, here, here, question, question. (laughs) Did that really happen, Jesus? If I had been on the road, would I have seen the poor man in the ditch and the the Samaritan stopping and the donkey and all the rest? Would I have seen that, Jesus? And I can imagine somebody else in the... (laughs) in the crowd screaming out it's a parable dummy (laughs) he just made it up and then the argument might start well I think it could have really happened because I've been on that road and it does go down from Jerusalem to Jericho and I've seen the donkey and I think he's just giving us some local gossip and Jesus is tearing his hair out (laughs) it's not not local gossip it's a parable and at the end of it of course what Luke says is go and do likewise. Now, wait a minute. Does that mean I have to become a, a Samaritan and cruise up and down the Jerusalem road looking for people in the ditch? Go and do likewise? <laughs> of course not. He's told you a parable. That is, if you want bloody affection, a made-up story in which your ethnic opponent or enemy helps you. And he's asked you to go and do likewise. Okay, I think any intelligent person in the audience might not have liked it, by the way, but they'd have got it. They wouldn't have taken it as a piece of gossip or a piece of history and an invitation to cruise the road looking for people in the ditch. They'd have understood, as that man said, it's a parable, dummy. Mm -hmm. So now a parabolic overture is, to use the word we normally use, fiction, a made-up story that gives you all the major elements, emphasis, meanings of what is to come afterwards. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you miss the parable and the overture, then you miss what's coming after it. Mm -hmm. So So it's like a a shorthand. What I'm saying is this is the intention of Matthew and Luke. If we don't like it, Take it up with them. It's not my idea. It's what they decided to do. As I say, Mark didn't decide to do that. John didn't decide to do that. They did. We're going to give you the nativity of this child as an overture to the life of this child. Okay. Now, that makes me want to ask, since the two gospel or two nativity story writers uh, write something very different what are they each really interested in? What, what's on the mind of each one as he makes this introduction? 
Yes, I mean, that is going to take us into what we will do in the second and third one. In the second and third one, I want to show exactly and precisely how you get from Matthew's overture to Matthew's gospel, or, or maybe even better putting it backwards. If you begin with Matthew's gospel, chapters 3 to 28, see his emphasis there, see what he wants to, to insist on, you could almost write his overture yourself. If you, to go back to my musical example, if you had heard, first of all, all of the Pirates of Penzance, and somebody said, now in this overture, we're going to take a medley of all of those main tunes. Yeah, you could write it yourself. You could score it yourself. Once you've heard what comes afterwards. So you have to know what does Matthew want to emphasize in his gospel? What does Luke want to emphasize in his gospel? I think in both cases, we are talking about a man. So his is correct. And of course, Anyone who's read the Gospels carefully, and I've spent my life doing it, recognizes the difference. If you were to put them in parallel columns, which is the book I work with always from the Gospels, all four of them are in parallel columns. So I'm reading them not so much uh, vertically as it were horizontally. I'm watching how Matthew and Luke are different. If you do that, after a while you get I want to say this very carefully and, and cautiously, you get a little bit into the mind of the author. You, you get to begin to think, I, I think I see after 50 years of this, I think I know what Matthew is up to. And I think I know what Luke is up to. And basically, I feel confident in that because I've been comparing them on the same subject. I've been watching how one tells about, oh, um, the Annunciation, let us say. One tells about the, the Annunciation differently. I'm watching the differences. Now, I'm not doing that at all dismissively. At all. It's not as if I'm saying, oh, see the mistakes. Of course not. Yeah, there are some mistakes in there, but, you know, that's, that's just the courtesy of letting an author who's it's almost like a preacher who's making a statement and he gets the dates wrong. It's, it's not the big thing. It's only adolescents focus on, on the mistakes. The differences are important because the differences are where the meaning comes through. So what we have to do in a way is submit yourself to authorial intent. Not say, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have them kind of all saying the same thing. And so I don't like this. And then, of course, the only take it up with God or take it up with whoever inspired these stories. Okay, well, since you put it that way, there's one way in which they are doing the same thing. And I'm saying that because in the book you say that both of these uh, birth stories are personal and, uh, and uh, political now, I can understand yes. personal. What do you mean by political? All right, let me start on that, because that's the profound level we've got to now. We're both saying the same thing, and no amount of the differences should prevail on that. I, I, I said that to understand, well, to understand anything that you're hearing, even to understand if you're listening to the news, you have to know authorial intent. What does this author, this communicator want to get across to me? 
you also have to know what I call historical matrix. I mean, it would be incredible if we could read, say, a 2,000-year-old text written in Greek, translated it to English and say, I got it, I got it. I mean, it takes years of trying to get back into that time, read all the other um, writings from the same time, read all the sites that they've seen, try to go down to Bethlehem and see what it looks like, try to go to Nazareth and see what it looks like, go into the museums and see what's left over from these people. Until you finally say, I, I think I have a slight feeling, as I say again cautiously, for what they're up to. For example, I'll focus on Matthew, which I'll do in much more detail tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Matthew says, the Magi arrive to Herod, and they say, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Now, when we're reading that, <laughs> fireworks should be going off. <laughs> fireworks should be going off. They've arrived at the court of the king of the Jews, Herod, and that's his official title, by the way, because um, Augustus gave him that. It's a formal title. It's not just what we happen to call him. He is the Rome-appointed king of the Jews. And any other use of that term is, put it politely, high treason. Or low treason, if it's, if it's incredible. So they arrive at the court of Herod, king of the Jews, and say, as it were innocently, excuse me, <laughs> your majesty, where is the newborn king of the Jews? <laughs> and Herod knows that he has about <laughs> maybe 10 possible kings, hang- or sorry, sons hanging around his court, all possible future kings of the Jews. But right now, he's the king of the Jews, and he's not into transition. So I go back to my word I used before, if there's a newborn king of the Jews, and it ain't in the palace, this is problem. So immediately, he sets out to uphold the old and kill the new. This is not a peaceful transition. This is not an orderly transition. This is what the old does when it resents the new. It opposes it. So anyone in that first century reading this story, as soon as they got to that point, where is the, the newborn king of the Jews? It's like cringing. Ooh, this is, this, is, this is disaster. Oh, you people, what did you do? And so what happens, of course, is Mary, Joseph, their newborn son, has to flee like refugees. And here's the terrible irony that nobody in the first century could miss. They flee from Israel to Egypt. That's going in the wrong direction. Everyone knows that Moses took his people from Egypt into Israel. Now they're going in the wrong direction. They're not just refugees from a political assault, political danger, lethal political activity. They're going to Egypt for safety. You know, I remember way back, oh, I don't know, this must have been maybe 1999, Sarah and I were in in Cairo, and in our hotel room, we had television on, 
And the advertisement, the tourist advertisement in 1991 on television from Egyptian uh, television was inviting Christians to come to Egypt because Egypt had been the place of refuge for your savior. And in fact, they mentioned the church in, in, in old Coptic Cairo, where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph had spent the night in safety. They didn't mention Israel at all. The name was never mentioned, but they were using it for advertisement. So anyone in the first century, I'm going to say flatly, couldn't possibly miss the authorial intention. And to clinch the whole thing, the only other time in all of Mark's Gospels that you're going to hear the phrase, King of the Jews, is when it's put by Pilate on the Roman cross on which Jesus is crucified. Now, all of that is about as, I, I, I grant you, for us, it goes right over our heads. We miss it completely, probably. And Matthew would be turning in his grave and screaming. You missed it. The whole thing is about king of the Jews is a Roman appointed political title. And we now have a new king of the Jews. And of course, what Matthew was asking throughout his gospel, as we see in the next one, is okay, okay, now, so there's a new, there's a new king in town. What's the difference? In any transition, what you want to know is what's the difference? Otherwise, why bother? Just the same old stuff all over again. So if Herod is the king of the Jews, running the Rome-appointed kingdom, and Jesus is king of the Jews, running God's appointed kingdom, okay, anyone in the first century or the 21st century should be asking, what's the difference? Two kings, two kingdoms, eh, more of the same old stuff. What does that do for a Galilean peasant, for example? So yes, it's intensely political. And because it's political, it's personal to everyone in the first century and the 21st century who's experiencing the same transition phenomenon. So, Dom, I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, it certainly is for me. Um, why these two men in the first century, roughly living about the same time, who have access to Mark, um, if Matthew was concerned about king of the Jews, what is Luke's primary focus? Yes, and you just mentioned, of course, they're both based on Mark, but here they're on their own. <laughs> Mark doesn't give them a nativity story. Oh, so. that's right. That's right. Okay, guys, of course, yeah, thanks. Yeah. So, yes, the second thing we're going to have a look at is Luke. And here, for example, what I want to emphasize is how Luke insists on the Holy Spirit. We have to ask, what is the Holy Spirit? What makes the Spirit of God holy for Luke? Uh, that's going to be emphasized. People, uh, John the Baptist, uh, uh, Elizabeth, uh, Zachary, for example, are, are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Mary, the, the child, is born of the Holy Spirit. So as we go through Luke, in fact, as we go through Luke Acts, the two volumes of Luke's um, book, 
one book in two volumes, we're going to have to see that this Holy Spirit guides everything. The Holy Spirit is controlling everything. And of course, we want to know what's the Holy Spirit, and especially what makes the Holy Spirit holy. So the next two essays we're going to have to look at is first we're going to have a look at how Matthew 1 and 2 is the overture, the parabolic overture for Matthew, and how if you wrote it backwards, <laughs> it's almost inevitable. And then in the, in the third one, we look at the same for Luke, how Luke 1 and 2 is the parabolic uh, overture for Luke. And in the last one, I want to look at some other things, such as the virginal conception of Jesus and the Bethlehem birth of Jesus. Because they both agree on those, so I want to look at those in more detail and ask what they mean as parables. And that will be the fourth one of our foursome. I think it's interesting that um, David mentioned Mark because I'm not sure very many people in our listening audience or anywhere have ever done much study with the Gospel Parallels. And so we're uh, one of the uh, interesting points is that we are showing exactly how the Gospels are very different. And uh, I think for me early on, before I began to study it, that I just thought that these stories that about the wise men and about the shepherds, I just thought that that was uh, just the way it was, and then we it assumed was, that yeah. was a history. Yeah, yeah we I assumed that was, was one. Yeah, yeah, and I had no idea that they were completely separate stories written at different times, and only in Matthew and Luke. So this is going to be fun. I, I do have one question, Dom. You, um, you and Marcus began writing this book, the first Christmas, um, and you were considering what title to give it. So you, I think at first you were going to call it The First Week, like your previous book, um, The Last Week, which is about the seven days of Jesus' life, but you end up calling it The First Christmas. So why did you and Marcus decide on that title? Oh, that's a good one. You know, I remember, I remember having these conversations, but <laughs> I, I never loved it. So I think... It, it may even have come from our editors at, at Harper One in San Francisco. They may have said, well, it's not a week. It's, you know, <laughs> uh, it's longer than a week in Luke and it's, who knows, in Matthew. So they, they may have told us, actually, go with the first Christmas. But let me pick up one thing you've just said, because that's taken for granted about Mark. Uh, years ago, my students at DePaul, I used to have them read to Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. And by the time they got into the math, middle of Matthew, I almost had a rebellion on my hands. These, these guys are all saying the same thing. It's, just, it's all about parables and miracles. And we're getting tired of reading it. So I changed. <laughs> I started giving them out copies of the way I would study it myself. Parallel columns where you have Matthew, mm -hmm. then you have Mark, then you have Luke and you have John in parallel columns. And I'd ask them to take a, a given incident. It could be whatever it was. Say the baptism. Let's say the baptism. I want you to read across. Read, read not vertically, but horizontally. See what Mark says, Matthew says, Luke says. Now, here's the experiment I tell them. More, a lot of scholars, a consensus of scholars, think Mark is the source for Matthew and Luke. And some even think for John as well. Some think that's, that's controversial. Tell, take a look at them. See what you think. Look the way Matthew tells it. Look the way Luke tells it. 
Now, you know, they couldn't get very much with one example, but after I gave them multiple examples of that, they got the same feeling I had. We, we're getting to know what Matthew is up to. Whenever Mark says this, Matthew is going to do that. <laughs> and whenever Mark says this, Luke is going to do the opposite. Matthew may change it, Luke may erase it. So somebody who spent, you know, decades of their lives, like I've had, reading in parallel columns, gets a sense for the mind of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't want to, as I said, I'm saying that cautiously. Don't let's on, you can skip 2,000 years in a, in a breath. But you, you understand that, all right, now, Matthew and Luke are going to have no source for a nativity. Hmm. They really are on their own. When they get to the baptism, okay, that's fine, we got Mark. Um, they're on their own here. And they could have decided not to do it, by the way. If you notice, if you read Luke chapter 3, verse 1, there's a lovely opening there, completely good opening. He dates everyone, and most scholars think that could well have been his first draft for the whole gospel before he decided to put in 1 and 2. So we have to, let me repeat this. You have to respect the intention of the author And when you've understood the intention of the author, then you can say to yourself, and only then, all right, is this still valid for me today? Or is it simply understandable in the first century, but outdated? So, for example, Herod, king of the Jews, is totally outdated for me. I've never been under Herod, king of the Jews, but have I ever been under a political system that wants to make me run, (laughs) not run to America as a chosen land, as it were, but run from America as no longer the chosen land. So I can't read these stories. I'm incapable of reading the stories, for better or for worse, and seeing them just as old, archaic, antique stories of people long dead and gone, and yeah, it's interesting to dip into their lives and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we can do so much better than them. We've learned a lot, and we're certainly much better. I can't see it. What I see again and again is deep patterns, deep patterns, mm-hmm. but not that deep, to be honest with you, there that I see again in our own life. And again, yeah, they're not that deep. They're kind of on the surface a bit. Well, Dom, you have piqued our interest. I cannot wait to get into more detail about both Mark and Luke's narrative about the Nativity story. Um, We are out of time for this particular episode. Um, David, do you have any other comments to make? No, I'm just on pins and needles waiting for the next one. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Carson, this has been great. So um, we will pick up with episode two. Um, which is, uh, we're going to be talking about the infancy story of Matthew as Parabolic Overture. So thank you, Dom, for being with us for episode number one. And to you, Debo, and David, and to all our listeners, Happy Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) This has been a production of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation, producers of Faith and Reason seminars and educational programming. Additional funding is provided by the Wendland Cook Foundation. If you're interested in reading 
Dom and the Late Marcus Borg's book, The First Christmas. It can be found at most bookstores or online at Amazon. For home study materials designed to broaden uh, one's awareness even more, you could visit our website at www.faithandreason.org.